Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another session of Real Talk All the Time on Real Talk Radio 17 with your hosts, H.J. Morgan, Rob Hall, D.S. Rivers, and Hadaria. How's everybody tonight? Good. I'm doing very well. Good, doing well. Yep. Very good, very good, brother. All right, that's good to hear, everybody. Uh, this evening, we're going to be touching on the gun control discussion or debate, if you will. And we're going to touch a little bit on the war on drugs, but uh, we're going to discuss gun control and uh, its effects and, uh, in our country right now and the, the, the huge debate looming over a few uh, events that have happened in our country over the last few years, actually, re- regarding guns and, and gun-related deaths. Uh, tonight... I'll be introducing a special guest, uh, very in a few seconds here, uh, attorney Brian Burson of the Burson Firm out in uh, Central Isle of Long Island. Uh, he called in before, and uh, we have him back again. He's, he's a friend of the show. I'll be bringing him on momentarily, and uh, he's going to give us his take and his uh, his views on, on gun control and the war on drugs this evening. So we would like we would like to. Welcome him back to the show. I'll bring him in here. Hey there, Mr. Burton, how are you? You're alive. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well, and I'd like to say hi uh, uh, to to Rob Hall and uh, Mr. Rivers and your, hey, your other. You, you have one more host here. I didn't I didn't catch the name. Tell tell your name, host. <laughs> hi, I'm Daria Morgan, counselor. Good to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you too. Thank you for having me on. Excellent, excellent. So I, I have a couple of things I'd like to start off. Let's let's cut right to the chase here on the topic of gun control, and we're going to take it around the room. We're going to start with you, uh, of course, uh, being our guest, uh, uh, Brian. But what do people mean by gun control, and who is subject to gun control? Well, what gun control means is actually um, an interesting issue that a lot of people don't talk about. Um, Most people who support gun control are not against all guns. They are, they tend to be against the, uh, against private, be against private citizens uh, owning and and holding onto guns. Uh, They could not be against all guns because naturally they would want police and military uh, to have them in part to enforce the gun control laws themselves. Uh, so it's not a blanket uh, opposition to guns. It's it's who they don't want holding them. Um, as far as who is subject to gun control laws, they tend to be uh, regulated at the state level. There are there are extensive federal laws, 
But at the state level, um, sometimes when legislators pass gun control laws, they seek to make themselves exempt from those laws. Mm -hmm. um, they realize that police can't be everywhere protecting everyone all the time. And uh, in uh, a number of years back in California, prosecutors wanted themselves to be exempt from gun control laws too. So uh, okay. it's a matter of uh, people, not everybody wanting to be subject to the same laws that they pass. Mm. Mm. Interesting. That All is right. interesting. Uh, uh, briefly here, uh, Hadaria, what, what are your thoughts uh, in regards to uh, what gun control looks like right now here in, 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 our, in our country? Um, I think it, it's hard to really sort of think about this without thinking about two other things that come to mind, and the first thing being Sandy Hook and the second being um, the stop and frisk trial that we had here in New York. Um, the reason why Sandy Hook comes to mind, um, obviously, is because of the, the, the sort of firestorm and the gun control debate that it set off. But what sort of stands out to me is why sort of the latest um, efforts on the federal level failed is that, you know, all of this sort of um, 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 argument went into place that if we had stricter gun control, then we would not have had what happened in Sandy Hook happen. And, and, and it's, you know, lots of people were for stricter gun control and for things like universal background checks, but it, it just did not bear that connection to what happened with this mentally ill young man and, and Sandy Hook, and I think that's one of the reasons why it failed. So when you talk about gun control, this idea of who's, you know, impacted, gun owners, gun dealers, hunters, and so forth, um, I, I really do think that you've got this big problem where you've got many jurisdictions. You've got the federal government. You've got different states who have different laws. And so in New York, we have this very, very strict law called the SAFE Act now. Um, and we're still going to have issues because of all the states that surround us that don't have as strict laws. The next thing that people and police have say have been extremely effective is not really just the gun control laws, but has been policing. Policing has been a okay. big part of crime. And so if you talk about, you know, we want gun control as a way to sort of curb urban violence and crime, the big opposition in that respect will be, well, actually, it's policing and aggressive policing or, or sort of blanket policing that's been very effective. And that brings to mind stopping frisk. Um, just recently, Rudy Giuliani was on um, MSNBC saying, you know, it wasn't really just the gun laws that helped us bring down the crime in New York. It was the fact that, you know, I had boots on the ground. I had police on the street, and they took guns out of people's hands. And a very recent sort of... Um, um, a, a argument was made in Chicago where Rahm Emanuel dis, uh, you know, dispatched tons of police from behind desks onto streets and the crime rate and the gun violence in Chicago went down. So what, you know, I think the real question is what do people really expect to gain out of, um, you know, advocating for stricter gun laws? What do they really think they will get out of it? What are the results that they're really looking for? And is stricter gun law going to actually deliver those results? Right. The, the very important uh, things to, to ask ourselves and to, and to look at and to address. Um, uh, Rob, you are a uh, police instructor and a captain. Uh, you, you, from the law enforcement standpoint, uh, yeah. gun control, sir, talk to me. 
in my own, and this is just me talking, I'm talking about Robert Hall, outside of even being involved in law enforcement, the bottom okay. line is this. At the end of the day, we know in the real world people are going to get access to um, to unlawful weapons, and we know that there are going to be people out there that want to defend themselves and things of that particular nature. The problem that I have with it is this. All right, let's take the family and let's revisit that. You had this guy's mother that actually, you know, she said that he had some kind of issues and had problems and things like that. She told him how to shoot. So now he executes his mother. He didn't kill his mother. He executed her and takes her weapon and then goes into the school and kill innocent people. So at the end of the day, do we need uh, gun control laws? I mean, obviously we do, but the unfortunate thing is, like anything else, money talks and the BS walks. If you have right. a, a proper amount of money, there's going to have there's going to be other people that have access to these particular weapons. I mean, we had a situation down here and not too long ago, and I'm talking about in the state of Virginia, to where uh, people were buying weapons down here and then they were taking them up to say a New York or even mm-hmm. other states and actually selling them, you know, unlawfully, of course, but mm-hmm. it's the nature of the beast. And these are the things that we got to deal with, unfortunately. Right. Um, my thing is, as far as from the whole gun control standpoint, the bottom line is this. How do you, and even as a person that's in law enforcement, I mean, how do I know who's who? How do I say that, all right, you're allowed to buy a gun, but this person over here is not allowed to buy a gun? You could do right. all the background checks. You could do this. You can do that. And unfortunately, is um, from the standpoint of a supply and demand issue, as long as it's there, demand for that particular supply, whether you do it lawfully, unlawfully, or unlawfully, excuse me, there's always going to be an issue with uh, guns. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, DS, gun control. Yeah, well, um, not to throw any satire on this, but, uh, you know, we, Rob and yourself and, and, and myself, we grew up in New York, in the inner city. And, you know, it's sad to say that we can't stop these illegal drugs, excuse me, these illegal guns from hitting the streets. And in all, in all honesty, good gun control where we're from is using both hands while firing. Bottom line, um, it, it gun control is broken down for me. I look at how we protect our homes, how we protect okay. our, our our person and our family, and sport. Um, these are the three basic needs for guns, if you ask me. Um, we, we just it won't stop. I mean it. It's sad. I think the biggest part of gun control may actually be having a mental health check along with these oh, investigations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, most yeah. most of the people who are, are who are doing the killings it's not, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Smith from across the street who happens to be an upright citizen. It's the idiot who broke in his house. It's mm. the idiot who 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 doesn't have any policing of his own person that are violating hmm. these crimes. And until we right. start to control that, we'll, that will fight an uphill battle. Mm. Right. 
Yeah. Well, before I give it back to uh, uh, Brian, I, I just want to throw something out here. I'm going to read some, some stats here. Uh, and I want to just briefly, before I give it back to Brian, uh, touch on something somebody mentioned. Uh, sorry, not somebody, but our co-host, Hadadia, mentioned about uh, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I want to take it back to the year 2010 here, the statistics. In the year 2010, mm. guns took the lives of, of 31,000 Americans in homicides, mm. suicides, mm. and unintentional shootings. This mm. is the equivalent of more than 85 deaths each day and more than three deaths each hour. 73,000 Americans are treated in hospital emergency departments for non-fatal gunshot wounds in 2010. Okay, firearms were the third leading cause of injury-related deaths nationwide in 2010, following poisoning and motor vehicle accidents. So a lot of people get poisoned too, apparently, according to this. But uh, a little tongue-in-cheek. But <laughs> between 1955 and 1975, the Vietnam War killed over 58,000 American soldiers, less than the number of civilians killed with guns in the United States in the average two-year period. Okay, that's significant. In the first seven years of the U.S.-Iraq War, over 4,400 American soldiers were killed. Almost as many civilians are killed with guns in the U.S. And I want to take it to Chicago, because between the year 20, well, 2001 and uh, uh-huh. 2012, there were 2,000 U.S. soldiers killed in Afghanistan in the same period, there were 5,000 citizens that died in the streets of Chicago. Now, my question is this. Uh, when you talk about gun control, um, you know, it, it, to me it seems to target people that can purchase guns legally. I don't see anything right. pointing to people that are buying weapons through the black market. Um, yeah. And... Huh. Is purchasing weapons through the black market the same as what you talked about, Rob, as far as people taking guns from gun shows and then bringing them up north? Is that considered black market, or is is black market something more nefarious than that? I mean, I'm a little naive when it comes to certain things. So is that considered black market, or is that just considered just bringing weapons across state lines through, uh, you know, other means? Um, So, you know, I want to look at – I want to address those things, but I want – Go ahead. No, I was just about to say, before you toss it off and, and the panel looks at that, mm-hmm. just recently here in North Carolina at a gun show, uh, it, you know, it kind of leaked out that if I, let's just say I am a felon who legally cannot hold or possess a gun, mm-hmm. if I buy it from a private individual, I bypass all background checks. Mm-hmm. That's a I, little scary for me. And I think that's why I'm not. I think I think I, I, that is the reason why so many people, so many Americans, while, who still believe in their right, their Second Amendment right, and their and their right to actually own and bear arms, um, wanted right. universal background checks and wanted to close that gun show loop. Um, you've got two lawyers on this panel who I'm sure are chomping at the bit. Um, and so I'll defer to I, I know I'm one of them and I am I'll defer to Brian and I really want to mention with Chicago yes. it's very hard to talk about that without talking about the drug war that's going on in Chicago I was there right. in Chicago in, uh, in um, May 
and it was very it was very much a big issue. There literally is a drug war happening in Chicago, and that is a big part of their gun violence. It is it is the thing that's happening there. So I'll I'll defer wow. to Brian, and then I definitely yes. want to jump in on that. Brian, the gu- the the gun show loophole, Brian. What's up yep. with that? Well, with regard to gun dealers, um, the and at, at gun shows, the same rules apply to them as they do anywhere else. Um, since 1994, the gun dealers, registered dealers, have had to do a background check on uh, people purchasing guns. When people talk mm-hmm. about closing the loophole, they are referring to private gun transfers. And those transfers are handled under state law. So it depends on what state you're buying the gun in, uh, what the seller of the gun has to do. Um, Now, you referred to illegal guns, and there's a very important distinction to make between legal and illegal gun ownership in this country. Um, A few years ago, they did a survey of 18,000 state prison inmates, and they asked them where they got their gun. Less than 1% that they got it at a gun show. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. About 40% got that gun from a friend or family member, and mm-hmm. the other, and another 40% got their gun on the street or from an illegal source. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now going back, you mentioned Absolutely. Chicago. Chicago banned all handguns in 1983, and it didn't do anything to reduce violence in the city. Violence went up. Exactly. Um, Eight years before the law, the murder rate fell uh, almost in half. From 1983 to 1999, murder the murder rate dipped below the pre-ban era, uh, the, the pre-ban number, only one time. Um, meanwhile, across the United States as a whole, the murder rate fell 31%, and in the largest cities across the country, it fell 34%. So Chicago banned guns, and they got more crime. There's a great book by an author named John Lott, Jr. The book is now in its third edition. It's called More Guns, Less Crime. And he, he performs statistical studies, and these have all been reviewed, by and peer-reviewed, and people can't disprove them. More guns, less crime, less guns, more crime. Now, one other thing. You mentioned that it came up Sandy Hook. Um, children are often used as a prop in this gun debate. Mm-hmm. Gun-free zones, which is uh, in 1995 there was a, a gun-free zone act. I think it's a federal act, and um, I think states can exempt themselves out of it. But gun-free zones tend to be a magnet for lunatics. Um <laughs> Before 1995, many states allowed concealed handguns on uh, public school campuses. Um, if you have to, and you have to ask yourself this question. If somebody was coming after you or your family, would you want to put a sign out front that said your house is a gun-free zone? And I think you answered the question about what you wanted to do. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> Interesting. Absolutely. You know, you, you know another guy's good, Brian. One other thing, who who what is who benefits the most from gun ownership? You know, and the the answer is women and minorities and people who live in the inner cities 
because police are very it's, it's very expensive to pay a salary and pension for policemen it's very it's very expensive to maintain prisons but who who bears the cost of private gun ownership it's the person that goes and gets a license right all right i, right. I you know i wanted to follow some of Brian up with some of wanted to follow up with some of Brian's comments and some of the things that you um pointed out um um h j and and i wanted to to basically you know put it out there that that has been one of the biggest problems, and that's why some so many people are like we want some basic things to sort of be closed, but you know a lot of that's where people see a lot of holes in this gun debate and this move for very very strict gun laws so now you have this, like, you know, an even stricter gun law in New York, the SAFE Act. And, I mean, there were some things that were taken out of it that were absolutely really, I mean, they were just almost everything would have been banned. Um, but I think it's really clear when you, when you really talk with police and you look at stats that policing is a really big part of, of bringing crime down. And when you look at stats that you read that so many people, that Brian talked about, so many people in jail who had illegal guns, that right there tells you so much. And 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 we have to deal with other things that contribute to urban violence and, and the proliferation of arms on the streets. And it is, quite frankly, the drug war and those issues um, and, and all sorts of other crime that is, that is a big part of the problem. But making it more difficult when we already have um, pretty strict laws in states like New York um, adding to the burden of actually owning guns legally is not going to help bring down that crime. And I do think there's some there's some truth when you have former police commissioners and mayors saying, no, the reason why it's better here is because we policed more. That's been the biggest difference. And I think there's something to that. And um, I think Chicago is proof of why Chicago is so violent. You have a city run by um, a notorious Mexican drug war. Uh, Lord, who who is still at large, and 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 the drug war is still dominating um, the crime in that city, and it's known wow. by all law enforcement, and they're doing their best to try, and and work on this, but really they are outmanned and outgunned by drug lords, and that's what's going on. Wow, wow, that that is that is amazing stats. They're amazing because, in in a way. In a way, and we'll be going there shortly. But in a way, the the, the gun control and the war on drugs are are kind of a sister uh, topics in, in and of themselves. You know, um, I, I want to throw two different two different stories at you guys and, and 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 get a quick view of this. There was a story maybe about two months ago of a elderly uh, couple out west somewhere, and uh, I believe the woman was in her seventies. And a man broke into her house. Her, her husband was bedridden, and he couldn't really do anything. But he did teach her how to shoot when he was when he was able to get around and well. He, I think he was a World War II vet himself. And uh, she either shot at or shot the man. Uh, she didn't kill him, but I, she may have wounded him or something like that. And she she chased the guy off. You know, she called she had called nine one one, and uh, but she was uh, it, the way. She spoke. She was so calm and so cool about it, and you know she was trained to fire this firearm, and she was confident in her in her ability, even being in her seventies, to, to to protect her home. And and to me, that is an example of you know a a, a gun owner who's responsible 
and has it to, to protect themselves. And you can't punish people like this because of illegal guns. And I, I think it keeps getting twisted around, and it, it's almost unfair to the to some of the people that are responsible and uh, that 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 use weapons responsibly. Now, here's another uh, a story I want to speak to you guys about. Just recently in Jersey, you had a, a woman who a guy ran up in her house and beat her up in front of her three-year-old child, threw her down a flight of stairs, and, and, and so forth and so on. And this woman was very petite. She was young, very petite, and the guy that broke into her home was a big guy. So in her situation, I wonder if she had a gun, would she have been able to defend her home, or because this guy was so quick and so strong, would he have, been, would he have wrestled it from her perhaps and maybe made the situation even worse? So I mean, there's pros and cons, I guess, in in, in the argument. You know, mm-hmm. uh, when I watched that video of that lady being attacked, uh, you know, this mm-hmm. guy was fast and strong, and I don't even know if uh, she would have been able to pull a weapon on this guy. Uh, but you know, he was apprehended and arrested, thankfully. Um, yeah. You know, but these are situations where it could go either way. I mean, could the guy have, you know? They were speculating because the guy have shot, you know, the child and the mother at that point. You know, this guy was, you know, clearly out of his mind. Um, but, uh, you know, you had that argument as well. What, what state was that um, in, Habib? That was actually in Jersey. Jersey that was actually in Jersey. I, I know exactly what you saw when I saw the video myself, too. Yeah, that was horrible. It was a horrible video to even watch. Um, but, uh to to move to move on to the to the next question um you're talking about uh gun laws in 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 different in, in different uh in, in different countries i mean um there are countries that don't have guns the way the united states people in the united states have guns and it appears that they may have less crime than we do how do we answer that question when we're asked, okay, we got all these guns, there seems to be a lot of crime, a lot of shooting, and there's countries that, you know, don't have guns or have access to, excuse me, weapons the way we do. How do we address that issue or that question? I would like to first offer that many of those nations have a very different drug policy than we do. Okay. I, I mean, I'm I'm very serious about this, that many of those nations especially the ones that are constantly touted, uh, Western European nations, where there are very strict gun control laws and uh, a certain amount of economic prosperity and relatively um, a much lower crime, they have a very different drug policy. While drugs are still a problem, um, they have a treatment-based approach to it. Um, You don't have the same type of domination um, by organized crime or or it doesn't fill in the same way in terms of the violence of it. That it does here, and and I I think that it's 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 these two things are very closely aligned, um, you know it's 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 part of part of I think the the argument for why it's not simply that you know they have less guns and therefore they have less crime. They also have many times um, a more treatment based drug policy, and they also have um, a, a stronger social safety net, a, a stronger safety net for for public good, for education, for housing, for Medicare, for for medicine, things like that. So it's a little bit different. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, 
mass public shootings, guys. Uh, uh, you have people that would bring that argument into the, the gun control debate. Uh, let let me go around the panel here. Uh, DS, uh, is to use mass shootings, mass public shootings as a as a crutch for 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 gun control. What is what's your views on, on mass shootings and things of that nature? Uh, that you know what? I, let me defer on this one. I want to get my thoughts together. I, I have a couple of big motions, so I, I'll, I'll defer. Okay, fair enough. Rob. Brian, if you uh, want, oh, I'll let Rob go. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Um, no, nah, I just want to let's just say the uh, the incident that happened out in Denver a couple of years ago with the mm-hmm. releasing of the Batman shoot. Oh. Okay. Um, let's just take that individual that went to a movie theater and shot a whole bunch of innocent people. You know, um, my thing is this, and I know he's trying to play, and I'm just using Rob Hall's words, the crazy card, and make it seem like, you know, he thought he was uh, the Joker and this, that, and other. Um, bottom line, at the end of the day is, again, all right, you have a isolated situation that has nothing to do with a private citizen trying to defend their home. Now, my right. thing, like, at the end of the day is this. If you have an individual that's trying to just take care of their family and they're trying to live right and they're trying to obey laws and things of that particular nature, don't punish that individual. Unfortunately, like anything else, the media puts it out there like, all right, we have a situation that happened here, so everybody else in the world has to be punished for that circumstance. And it's unfortunate, but this is the world that we live in. Almost like a blanket statement, and to go even right. further into like um, other countries on how they deal with certain situations. Okay, I was a person that was in the United States Navy, so I went to travel to different places. Let's just take uh, Japan for example. Japan, even the police officers don't have uh, weapons. Look at they that. have other means on how they deal with the you know the circumstances of dealing with individuals and things of that particular nature. But at the end of the day, okay, on the bottom line, is let's even visit the uh, Singapore situation. We had a situation a few years ago. I'm not too sure if everybody's familiar with this particular thing. Um, the United States was in an uproar because a child that violated some of the laws over in Singapore had to get lashing. And things right, I remember that. I do too. Okay, and now here's the thing. Okay, when we're on a ship and we go out to or we're about to enter these particular uh, ports, if you will. We receive a port brief saying that, hey, look, these are the circumstances. If you guys disobey certain laws, these are the things that's going to happen. Now, considered here in the United States, it's cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, I went to places, take uh, like uh, Jabal Ali or even uh, places over in the Gulf, that if you stole something, whatever hand that you uh, stole it with, they was cutting your hand off. So now when you come back to the United States, how we deal with things is a little bit different and less harsher than how things are dealt with overseas. So the bottom line is, like anything else, where do everybody stand when it comes to cruel and unusual? I'm not saying that I'm I'm, I'm on a, on this crusade of, you know, an eye for an eye, two for a tooth, but my thing is this. 
there's a lot of heinous crimes that's done here in the United States, and then you have so many chances that a person has once they get caught. You know, if a person is sitting on death right. row, they have X amount of chances before, you know, they get executed or they get X amount of chances before this, before that. So when do we get to a point to where it's like, you know what, we did it, we have all the information, we have all the evidence, we have everything on you that you get punished for what you did? Right. Right. Wow. Wow. I, I, I hear what you're saying, and, uh, and I agree. It, it, you're right. People get a lot of chances here uh, to, to commit more heinous crimes. Uh, uh, Brian. The, the, the type of, of gun laws that, that I was referring to are, are right-to-carry laws. Yes. What, what, those are the type of laws that I believe reduce crime. Um, sometimes you see re- references to non-discretionary concealed handgun permits. That basically just means that a citizen can go to the local licensing authority, and whether that be a government office or the sheriff, and say, I want to have a license to carry a concealed handgun. Mm-hmm. Undiscretionary basically just means they don't have to prove that they have a job, that they carry a lot of cash, or that, a, or that someone's threatening them. They can just go in and get a license. As far as, as mass public shootings go, within five years of passing a law uh, allowing the non-discretionary carrying of concealed handguns, the number of mass shootings in the states uh, tends to trend to zero after about five years. And consequently, the number of deaths and injuries resulting from mass shootings has to fall as well. Um, the, the other suggested means of how to address those uh, uh, mass public shootings. I mean, people say more police. But if it takes police six minutes to reach a crime scene, uh, someone, uh, a maniac can do a lot of damage in six minutes if he has enough Mm -hmm. guns and enough bullets. Um, Now, as as cross-country comparisons go, um, they're made all the time. You'll see them on TV all the time. But I don't think they're good comparisons for this reason. Um, There are some countries that have high gun ownership and low crime rates. There are some countries that have high gun ownership and high crime rates. There are some countries that have low gun ownership and high crime rates. There are some countries that have low gun ownership and low crime rates. It's all across the map. It's very difficult to measure uh, or to compare countries because it's hard to get ownership data on who controls guns, or who owns guns. Um, these countries have different legal systems, like the Dari just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, crime, crime rates tend to be measured differently. Um, now, the one country that, that, that there's been significant studies on is Great Britain, which banned handguns in 1997. In 1997, they banned handguns from 1998 to 2005, the crime rate in England and Wales, two of the, of, the, of the provinces of the United Kingdom, two of the countries in the United Kingdom, increased 340%. Mm. So the real comparison to make is not from one country to another. It's after you pass a law banning or controlling guns, what happens to the, to the crime rate? And what happens time and time again is as soon as you pass a law Increasing uh, that makes gun control more strict, crime goes up. When you loosen gun controls, crime goes down. And in the United States, no state 
that has ever adopted a right to carrying law has ever rescinded it. The only thing that's ever been done is that those laws have been made looser, allowing more people to carry guns. Hmm. Wow. Uh, I, that, I that's that's also, interesting. I would also like to add on mass shootings that I was just sort of taking a look at um, some, of the, some of the literature on it again, and it is amazing how many of them involve, majority of them involve um, the shooters actually obtained guns legally and obtained um, the 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 arms legally, the bullets legally, and that really becomes, well, I think, one of the other parts of the debate that I don't know that we've gotten into as much is really do, is there, you know, there's definitely a, a resistance towards trying to rescind or limit um, carrying laws or, or further restrict them. It doesn't seem to really do anything with respect to crime or mass shootings. The, the, the issue when it comes to mass shootings that comes up is, listen, is there really a need for civilians to have high magazine clips and, and assault weapons, military-style weapons. And that, I think, you know, that the, the waters get muddy because what's an assault weapon? What's a high magazine clip? I'll tell you now that the New York legislature tried to put into this last bill, they tried to define a, an assault weapon um, as, as something um, that would have uh, more than five rounds or pistol grips, and they tried to limit possession to no more than like two magazines, and that was taken out of the latest bill that New York passed. Um, you know, wow. some legislators said absolutely not. So you can see that there's, you know, there's a very di big difference in New York. What they would have called an assault weapon is something far different than a Bushmaster. You know, but but you know, the federal government said, well, no, we don't want the Bushmaster and the high magazine clips. And so I think that's where the mass shooting debate really kind of comes to a head. How much is too much? How far can we go, and what should be the line? And I think that's where we get when it comes to mass shootings. And so right. I toss well, that out there. Well, yes, and, and I just want to throw, throw something out there as well is that, uh, you know, not in every mass shooting, but in, in quite a few of these, uh, Mental health has been a a background mm -hmm. issue in regard to some of these, and and that continues to be the 800-pound gorilla in the room in, in here in the United mm -hmm. States is mental health. It's an issue with veterans returning home from 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 war zones. It's a hot issue there. It's a hot issue with the average person walking down the street. Nobody wants to address mental health. They won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. It seems, and when a person who's mentally ill gets a hold of a firearm, a you know what's going to happen next. So, uh, right. you know, it, it, this, that's an issue that needs to be addressed as well. I mean, like I said, I can't say it's every issue. Cause sometimes you just got fools out there. But in a few situations, it has legitimately been a mental health issue, and we we don't want to touch it. Instead, I see the politicians running and say, oh, more gun control. Oh, more. How about give, How about looking into the mental health of, of, of the, the uh, perpetrator? How about looking at people's mental health? You know, and how about also the, uh, mental health screening for uh, police more often, and to include military? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. your mind frame can change after you've uh, experienced what they call PTSD, and law enforcement go through it, military mm -hmm. go through it. So, you know, mm -hmm. and actually, some people <laughs> in, in not in, involved in uh, uh, our uh, in these fields. 
get some form of, of, of stress that causes them to snap. So mental health has got to be addressed somewhere down the line uh, when it comes to uh, these issues that include yes, violent crime with a handgun. Um, Rob, mm-hmm. I want to throw something at you that you, you just touched yeah. on. And here are some other stats. And you mentioned about people getting more than one chance and, you know, and, 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 and extra chances and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Here's a stat for you. Nationwide, in 2008, law enforcement agencies reported that 55% of aggravated assaults, 27% of robberies, and 40% of rapes, and 64% of murders that were reported to the police resulted in an alleged offender being arrested and turned over for prosecution. Now, check this out. Currently, for every 12 aggravated assaults, robberies, sexual assaults, and rapes, and murders committed in the United States, approximately one person is sentenced to prison for committing such a crime. One in 12. Is everybody nuts? Wow. One in 12? (laughs) One in 12. So there's your your multiple chances right there. Yeah, and and unfortunately, you know, Morgan, I, I tell you this. You know, I have a lot of officers that, come to me and um, I kind of mentor them and I talk to them, and especially some of the young guys. You know, they're overzealous. I mean, not overzealous. Let me take that back. What I'm saying is they went to the academy, they come, and they're very anxious to do what they are supposed to do, which is protect and serve. And sometimes now they get a, a perpetrator and then they go to court, and then sometimes things are knocked down. You know, we had a couple of cases, well, not so much us, but here in um, the state of Virginia, and I'm talking about, you know, as far as um, some of the other agencies that work here in Virginia to where you have people that committed DUIs four, five, six times, and it's like, you know, my thing is if you get caught X amount of times, you would think that the laws would tender to keep you inside the jail. And I have to tell my officers that, hey, look, the only thing that you can do is like anything else. You have enough probable cause, a reasonable and prudent, prudent person will be able to recognize that this particular crime is being committed. You do your job. It's nothing that we can do once we we take this person right. into custody and now we have the laws and we have everything that's on the book that says that, hey, okay, now after we do our process and we and we do everything that we're supposed to do, it's left in the judge's hands or it's left in the jury's hands and things of that particular nature. So I'm having a hard time with um, talking with certain officers that feel that they follow the letter of the law and they did everything that they were supposed to do, and now it gets to court and then there's a different circumstance. You know, unfortunately, there may be cases to where, all right, I didn't dot my I a certain way or I didn't cross my T a certain way. You have all these right. other mitigating circumstances that take away from certain circumstances, I mean certain situations, but then there's other things that go on in court to where uh, the judge may decide, you know what, uh, now let's uh, do this, you know, by a lesser means. And now this person, you know, because they may not have gotten in trouble before or there may be some other circumstances that dictate that, you know what, well, let's give this person a pass. So I have to, you know, talk with these officers <laughs> and keep them informed of doing what they're supposed to do, which is law enforcement. Right, right, right. DS, do you have anything uh, else on uh, gun control before well, we go I'm, into the war on drugs? Yeah, well, you know, we, we touched on it, and, you know, it's just disheartening um, as an American citizen that it's easy it's easier for us to buy guns illegally, legally, without 
than it is, excuse me, easier to buy guns than it is to buy, you know I mean, to get mental health. And I think that's the fundamental disconnect. Nobody looks yeah. at the mental health aspect of it. I can walk in, I can walk down the street right now to the local pawn shop and buy two, three, four guns. But if I walk into an emergency room and tell someone, I feel as though I want to hurt people, i got to sit down in the lobby for 30 minutes. That makes no sense. <laughs> right. Or maybe longer than that. No maybe an hour and 30 minutes. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And, you know, we I think the conclusion to this is really uh, we need to get serious about mental health. It's just as serious as we are about these gun control yeah. laws. And as a matter Absolutely. of fact, Absolutely. Um, as we – as we speak, I am actually posting a very good article uh, written by Jen Christensen from CNN in, in, in a forum. So I encourage our listeners to uh, take a look at that article. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And more than uh, I don't mean to interrupt, I just want to say this one thing. Unfortunately, all right, now, and especially now, the first thing that's going to come up in all Americans is, okay, where is this money going to come from? All right, we're supposedly in all this debt. And and now people are going to be like, well, where's the money going to come from to do or fund this particular health issue? Now, right. you know, unfortunately, <laughs> like anything else, these, these are one of the things that we have to deal with. And then there's going to be some backsliding. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some other things that come up into play. But, all right, where's the funding going to come for this? Right. Well, you know what? It, it's funny you say that because I'm going to give you some numbers that's going to make your hair stand on end. Uh, in regards to how much money we spend just on the war on drugs, so uh, mm-hmm. we got I think we should. We'll probably segue with that now into that uh-huh. aspect. And I want to read off some 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 stats again, some numbers and some statistics. And I'm gonna give it over to uh, Brian because he has some very interesting views uh, on the war on drugs. I'm gonna, I want to give it to him in, in a couple of couple of minutes here. Bear with me, but uh, I, I think this is important. Uh, when we talk about how broke the country is, and you just mentioned, you know, where would they find the money to to treat mental health uh, the way that it is right now? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to read this off to you. Are you ready? Yes. At this very moment, the federal government, as of, as of today, July 23rd, has spent $8 billion <laughs> on the war on drugs. On the state wow. side, they've spent... $14 billion on the war on drugs for a total of about $23 billion, folks. $23 billion on the war on drugs, okay? People arrested for drug drug law offenses this year stand at 940000 okay? People arrested for marijuana uh, possession or violations, okay? Actually, this is 89% of this number is possession only. 485,000, okay, um, people incarcerated uh, so far for drug law offenses, 6,115. I think it's probably bigger than that. Uh, it, it's, it's, these numbers are, are staggering, especially how much money we're spending on something that, in, in my opinion, folks, doesn't seem to be working. It doesn't seem to work. <laughs> Okay, and with that, I'm going to give it over to you, uh, Brian Burson. Please talk to us about the war on drugs. Well, I just have a question and, and go around the room and ask one quick question. When do you think the first drug law was passed? Oh, wow. Uh, 
Wow. You got me there. Rob, I can tell you, I don't know. Yep, I don't know. Yeah, this, this is this is how you got me there. Right. The first one I could find was in 1729 Wow. in China. Right. It was passed mm. by the imperial government of China to prohibit the use and commerce of opium. Mm. Mm. Okay. Interesting. Put that in George China, Washington too. one for two more years. Right. <laughs> the law, do you think it was successful or do you think it failed? Failed. I'm going to go fail. Okay. I think we know it failed basically what happened with, with China and, and England basically, you know, doing what it did, so I think we know it failed. <laughs> exactly. So the 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 war on drugs in China in seventeen twenty nine failed spectacularly. Uh in this mm-hmm. country right, we, we have this falls under the, the larger topic of prohibition. And the question is Correct. is prohibition of of uh Drugs or or some sort of substance, moral or or immoral. Now I I don't advocate the use of drugs. I mm-hmm. think that most of them are extremely harmful. I think that when people get addicted, it's an illness and they need to be treated for it. But I don't think drugs should be illegal. I think that the war on drugs should be ended. Um, and I don't believe that the government should be telling people that they can't drink alcohol, they can't use tobacco, that they can't eat certain types of food or in what portions they should eat them because prohibitions do not work. They never have and they never will. They're immoral. People can and will continue to make mistakes. And in this country, United States, in 1919, we passed the 18th Amendment, or the, the country passed the 18th Amendment, and... Alcohol was still available, but now it was made, instead of by distilleries and by brewers, it was made by bootleggers, and right. the quality the quality became, in many cases, poisonous, where right. um, people still went to speakeasies all the time. So what, what changed was that, you know, the 18th Amendment prohibited... Uh, the, the drinking of alcohol, and then it was repealed by the 21st Amendment. The, the one good, one important question is: What amendment right now is the basis for the drug war? And the answer is there is none. All of these wow. laws are passed. All of these laws are just statutes that were based on a reinterpretation of the Constitution. Um, they're all very expensive. We take people who were addicted on drugs and we warehouse them in prisons because prisons. You know, it's a big business. And uh, prohibition has created a tremendous black market, and it keeps the drug lords in business. Absolutely. Absolutely, Brian. I have a caller we're going to uh, get into right now. i got a caller. Caller from 8191. What is your name, and where are you calling from, sir? Oh, man. Hi. My name is Michael from New York City. Hey, Mike. What's going on? How you doing? What am I speaking to all right, this is Habib. Hey, bro, what's going on, man? Okay, welcome to the show. Yeah, I've called and spoken before. Just a few quick comments, and um, I'm going to drop into the background and listen for the flack that comes from it. A, I don't know why they're still calling it a war on drugs. The topic or the key or the tone or the title should be the war with drugs. This is a war with drugs on the 
populace of the United States, or what we call the free world, and they threw in some guns in order to spice it up a bit. No one on the lower level of the food chain has access to transport, produce, manufacture, or distribute any of these things they're talking about. Uh, hidden information has shown that the people who are perpetrating this war with drugs are the ones who are running this country as a means of escape for those who can't afford any other way and a means of retribution for those who can. Okay? There are no minority gun manufacturers in the United States. There are no national or international drug traffickers without someone in power, in control, knowing about it. You can't walk across a border of the United States. You can't cross any air border, sea border, or land border without someone of some governmental authority knowing about it. So you tell me with all the billions, trillions of dollars that they have, that they cannot stop this influx of drugs and guns? No. Right. They can stop it. They don't want to. This is a means of thinning the herd, so to speak. And just as a last note, I think everyone who can hear this and anyone who can't hear it, pass this on to people. Look up the topic, Georgia Guidestones. Some may have heard of it, some may have not. But it's a very real topic, and there are a lot of questions to be asked there in terms of they want to limit the population to 500,000. Okay, that sounds reasonable. But here's the problem. Who gets to decide who gets limited? Okay. They want to change the way the United States diaspora and dynamics of living are. So if you have 500,000 people that you want to keep alive within the United States or on the planet, maybe, who's deemed the servant and who's deemed the master? All this talk about this uh, black market chips, people being given uh, New World Order instructions, all of that has a bigger plan. This is something that didn't just start. This is something that's been going on for centuries. The problem now is they no longer rush for completion. They are taking their time and they're looking at each successive dynasty that has attempted to control the world. Watch and see where they made the mistakes. Okay, that didn't work. Let's back off and figure out why that didn't work. And they're coming back and they're refining it. And if you look through history, the closer it comes to that completion of that task is what this end game is about. They're getting closer and closer to the perfected plan of world domination. The key question is, who's going to dominate the world? I'm going to drop into the background some thoughts for people who think Interesting. Not war on drugs. I, I hear you, and, and that's an interesting, interesting take. Um, one thing I want to say is I want to go back a little bit to uh, the, the prohibition uh that's what this you know this is a modern day i guess prohibition if you will and as soon as prohibition hit uh, during the early 1900s you had the birth of the modern day organized crime you know uh the birth yep. of 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 organized crime uh la cosa nostra oh, yeah. and uh things yeah. of that nature and so we're, what we're seeing those are the things they're always put into the history books to justify what they're doing. But remember, back during World War One and World War Two, 
they were promoting the use of hemp because hemp was a very versatile product. When they realized that there was a market for it, it could be freely grown, it could be abundantly grown, but the people who were running the show couldn't make a profit from it. They did the same thing with that. They banned the use of it and tied marijuana and hemp products into cannabis products in order to blanketly cover everything that would be allowed to make a profit for the private individual, the same way they did with prohibition. All those people who stepped in and decided they wanted prohibition to be effective were the very same people who made their money. The Rockefellers and all those guys down the food chain made their money from prohibition. Interesting. They got their money then, hard work and effort. They got their money because they sat down and decided there's something that people need. People need food, they need clothing, they need shelter, they need natural resources, and guess what? They need entertainment. And the biggest entertainment industry in the United States is drugs and booze. So they put wow. limits on yeah. it. They, who could and could not use it or who could and could not manufacture it. When they did prohibition, instead of them saying it's illegal, what they should have done was monitored and governed it and set it up so that you have to have a license to manufacture it. Right now, anybody can sell it, but they have a select number of people who have the license to purchase the products that make it. At one point in time, they were trying to ban the use of any kind of corn and hops because people were doing the same thing. They were taking corn, taking corn liquor, they were taking rice, making rice wine, and they were saying, well, hey, we can't have this because if everybody's making liquor, we can't make any money. No matter, it's too easy to 
you know, get a hot lamp and grow it at your own house, at your own leisure. They can't tax it. It's, it's too it's it's too hard. I mean, that that's just the bottom line, in my opinion. Okay, uh, Rob. I tell you, uh, and it's, it's it's funny. Uh, let's take the let's just take marijuana for example. Okay, at the end of the day. And the reason why I I believe that uh, the war on drugs, or however you want to state it, will never end, because there's a lot of people that's getting backdoor monies off of it. Okay, let's that's what I'm saying exactly. Yeah, let's take some of these situations that happen where um, some you know agencies are able to infiltrate and they're able to trap. Let's just take the Coast Guard for example. All right, the Coast Guard. They'll do their patrols and they go into these drug interdiction operations. And I applaud them, and, and I'm an avid for it. Unfortunately, okay, now we have a circumstance where they catch certain products, and the product um, in measurement may be worth a street value of a million dollars, but as far as quality, it's something only going to different because now they have. Uh, you know, that's the decoy, and then you have all these other things that's coming into the country. Um, we know it, and, and I'm going to just throw it out there. There's a lot of people that's getting paid under the table, and I don't care what agency, I don't care what uh, what type of affiliation you have from whether it's law enforcement, from whether it's this person or that person, and no pun intended to the two attorneys. You have attorneys that defend these particular individuals, because they're getting paid. In the bottom line, money. If the money is changing hands, people are going to do what they need to do to make the circumstance happen. Now, if you take money out of people's hands, unfortunately, this is one of the reasons why it's never going to be legalized, because there's too much money involved in the circumstance where now, if you're talking about taxing, and I agree, Morgan, all right, would it help the economy? Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, in essence, it probably would. But there's so much money involved that people are getting paid under the table that it will interrupt certain programs. Aha. Uh-huh. So they probably say, why, why bother doing that? I, I'm getting my money right now. You know, right. and, and, and who knows? They might not get, they, they wouldn't get the kickbacks they get now, I guess, under the table if it was legalized. Uh, Hadaria, what, what do you think about that? If we, can make, if we can legalize at least marijuana tomorrow, would it help the United States? Would it would it decrease street violence? I don't I don't know that it's going to decrease street violence. Um, I don't I don't know that that's going to happen in light of the other drugs and and those products that also contribute to a great amount of violence. I do agree with others on the panel that I don't think it'll happen because there it's just far when when things become legal they become regulated and while you can collect um, tax revenues. It's, it's, it's really easy to take money that's used in the black market and to fund other things um, that involve legal and illegal ventures amongst people in power. So I, I think it's just far too advantageous for things to remain illegal. The other thing that I was very curious about is, you know, it once, if you did legalize marijuana, I wonder would U.S. producers actually have an advantage because once you do that, then there's there's a possibility for other um, international players who 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 could produce a better product at a cheaper rate um, with distribution for them to actually come in and dominate the market. And I wonder if that's you know one of the things. How where where is the product being produced? 
in volume and, and whether or not we would we'd see as much of the tax revenue because other folks, possibly growers in Mexico and other places, were able to outcompete. I wonder about that as well. So those are my thoughts. Hmm. Uh, Brian, uh, if, if, we, if we could legalize marijuana tomorrow, do you think it would help uh, us financially? Do you think it would de- decrease the violence that, that goes on here in the United States in regards to drugs or drug wars? I w- if I could, I would I would have them legalize marijuana this minute. Um, when you say the violence on the streets, I mean, arresting people for carrying a plant or smoking a plant or owning a plant, uh, arresting those people and throwing them in a cage, that's violence. That, but that's violence sanctioned by the state against people. Um, right. My, my feeling is that if you're going to uh, grow or smoke a plant, who, who's the victim? And, and I always thought that if you're going to have a crime, you need a victim. Um, the victim, to me, is arrested. As far as, as drugs go, um, marijuana is a, is a bulky thing to grow. It takes a long time to, to grow it and to, to process it. Um, and when they made it illegal, um, they increased the, the risk of growing it, which increased the reward for selling it. And the only people that are truly capable of producing drugs on a mass scale are big drug cartels. So if we legalized, if we legalized uh, marijuana, uh, in addition to stopping violence against American citizens who, who would otherwise use it anyway, uh, we're going to put the drug cartels out of business. And, um, you know, look, people can make certain drugs. Uh, marijuana, if they can grow a plant, they can grow it in their yard or they can grow it in their garage. Uh, right. Bake, baking crystal meth. You have to basically understand chemistry to do that, and most people aren't going to do it. That's what the, that's this is what keeps the drug lords in business. Wow, you know the United States put more people behind bars than any other country, five times as many per capita compared to Britain, Spain. A lot of these arrests are, are, are drug-related arrests, and half a century ago, folks. Uh, Relatively fewer people were locked up, and those inmates generally served shorter sentences. Okay, and 40 years ago, when New York uh, passed the Rockefeller drug laws, uh, you know, after they had named after their champion uh, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor at the time, um, you know, low-level low-level criminals were were put behind bars. And I mean, I guess you could put, you can include a person walking down the street with a nickel bag of marijuana as a low-level criminal in the eyes of advocates of the Rockefeller drug laws. I have a question for both attorneys. Uh, living in, in, in the New York area here, will there ever be a, a, a lifting or a, uh, a lifting of these Rockefeller drug laws that are putting some people that don't necessarily need to be in jail in jail, will they ever lift those laws? Will they ever revise them or change them? Or, or, or what do you what do you think will ever happen? Will anything ever ever happen with? I know there's been a debate about it for quite some time, but will anything ever happen in regards to these Rockefeller drug laws, uh, Hadaria? So I think I would I would you know point out that in '09 there was um, the the Rockefeller Drug Law Reform Act that was passed, and I um, and and so some of the things that were that were particularly problematic. There was some reform, there was some alleviation with respect to that. 
Um, I do, I think the biggest thing had been, you know, this idea, this, this locking up of people who really were nonviolent. Um, and, of course, the, the cocaine crack disparity. Um, at the end of the day, overall, when it comes to where we are with, with criminalization of drug use and drug and, and drug sales, I just, I, I'm, I'm not, I actually do think we would solve a lot of the violence if things were legalized and regulated. I just don't ever see it happening because it is far too profitable. That's where I land. Wow. Um, so I think the, the, the reform law in 2009 that was passed was a result of lots of lawyers and lots of criminal justice advocates and so forth saying, you know what, this, this is just too much. Locking someone up who's really nonviolent um, or, or, not, or, or ultra, overly criminalizing them, we've got to see if we can reform these laws. And so that, some of the, the alleviation went into effect in 2009. Um, so that's where I stand. There's, we're not going to really see, you know, widespread uh, rescinding of the laws and things like that. Wow. Uh, Brian, your thoughts on the Rockefeller drug laws, uh, can they do something with them? That, that's uh The question is, you know, could, could they? They could always do something. And, and what I think should happen what I would hope would happen is that uh, the courts would stop enforcing these. Uh, I think that prosecutors would stop bringing, uh, I would hope prosecutors would stop bringing cases. Um, I would take every every single person who's in jail for a nonviolent crime, a victimless crime, and I think they should be pardoned. I think anyone that has these drug convictions on their, on their record should have those convictions expunged. Um, Look, the President of the United States has said that he used to smoke marijuana. Um, Bill Clinton had marijuana. Um, it's, it's well known that Judge W. Bush had, had used harder drugs than that, or at least yeah. that those were Correct. the allegations. Yeah. So would, would the three past presidents of the United States have been better off or worse off if, uh, as a young person with any of those drugs, they were caught with them. Um, the, the answer is unequivocal: no. They would, they would, they were, they are much, they would be much worse off if they had been convicted. They would never have become president of the United States. They would never have got, or very, very unlikely that they would have gone to fancy schools and gotten fancy degrees. And um, you know, when, when you say it, the drug laws are too profitable, profitable to whom? They're certainly not profitable to the people who are in jail. They're certainly not profitable to the people who can't get a job or, or are suffering because uh, they have these, these convictions on their record, but they are profitable to, to the prison industry. Um, they're profitable to the people that enforce the laws. Um, so the question is, who, who is profiting and at whose expense? I, I, I would like to see all of these laws eradicated. I think that they're probably the most immoral laws or some of the most immoral laws we have because there's no victim that you declare a crime. And now Governor, Governor Spitzer, former Governor Spitzer, he, he was attorney general. He prosecuted under the, under the Rockefeller drug laws. And now he's asking for a second chance. Those are his words, to be, to, to be comptroller, to have a second chance. And I, I ask the question: What second chance do the people have that are that have these uh, that are in jail right now, or that can't get a job because of their their criminal convictions? Exactly, exactly. He's asking for I, something that 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 he never gave himself. That's interesting. Yeah. Go ahead, Adaria. I wanted to ask Brian what he thought about the reform that and the movement that took place in 2009 in New York to reform 
I mean, they're, 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 I understand the position about eradicating these laws, and I agree with that. But what did you think about the reform um, um, sort of movement and what took place in 2009 in New York? Well, I don't have enough information about the laws to, to speak competently about uh, how good the changes were. Any, any change that, that reduces the length of, of the prison sentence obviously is, is better. Um, anything that that uh, lets people out of out of prison sooner is better. But nevertheless, their liberty has been confiscated and and their lives have been impacted. And um, you know, it, it, it's it's no secret that that uh, for I don't know if it's still the case, but when when the penalties for crack cocaine were much more severe than they were for. Uh, Outer cocaine, and, yeah. and who was affected? I remember that. Poor people. Poor yeah, people this were, was, this was and, really and part minorities. of the reform. Blacks were, were, were affected more. Uh, but then again, you know, just saying, like, you know, okay, so the poor people are going to get the same sentence as the rich people or, or the wealthier people. In my opinion, they shouldn't be in prison at all. Right. Right. I, I, I agree with you. Oh, please. Please go ahead, Mike. Can I make a comment there? Um, the problem, and I've seen this, I've lived in New York City my whole life. I've been outside of New York City and other states as a visitor, as family members, and so forth. The problem that we have, and this goes across the board with everything in terms of city, state, federal, even the local government as far as townships, the problem is they've tied monetary incentives into everything that happens. I work in a company that rewards managers for disciplining employees claiming to save money, when all they're doing is taking the money from one pocket and putting it in the other. The problem here right now is they're putting an incentive on police officers, on court attorneys, on uh, what they call that, public uh, advocates or anyone who's dealing within the law system. If you are a, what they call, what they call that, a free attorney when the state or assigns you an attorney, a public defender, they're being given not a monetary benefit out of it, but they're in a situation where if you don't play ball with us, you will never have a law career unless you have the the credentials, the confidence, and the backing to make it beyond that hurdle. The police officers are being given an incentive that you must write a certain number of tickets, make a certain number of arrests. You must come in with some quality, as they call it, arrests in order to maintain your status where you are and gain promotions and upward mobility in these jobs. There's where the problem is coming in. They tied in monetary gain to the incentives, much similar to what goes on in the drug trade. They're not interested in stopping the drugs. They're not interested in stopping the guns because that puts money in people's pockets. But the social service system is not there to help people. It is there to maintain a status quo. It is there to help the people who are working in those systems continue to bring money in. I've dealt with the family court system for 15 years. The people that they have running the system are concerned with nothing else but keeping the monetary funds coming in that they continue to pay their salaries. I discovered in my own personal dealings with these systems the children's court or family court is comprised of ACS, which is Administration for Child Services. Mm -hmm. It is the judges who determine the support and the custody and the support collection unit. None of these three agencies is accountable to the other. They have no connection with each other. ACS is a contracted agency. Support collection unit is also a free agency that is paid by the 
to appoint it. There's where the system has to change. We are supposed to have an election system in this country that says you get into the title and the job that you get in based on what you tell us you're going to do. If you don't do what we say, you're booted out. We get the next person in. That is not what's happening. They have all these appointees, these political appointees, these cronyisms going on, and this is screwing the whole United States. I had a friend of mine tell me, you better be careful because they'll lock you up for treason. I said, no, I'm not attempting or advocating the overthrow of the government. I'm saying revamp it and stop all this cronyism, all this nonsense going on in the background that is destroying this country. I am 100% American. I believe in what they assigned us to do in the beginning, but they've corrupted it to the point where it no longer works for anyone. That needs to change. And the only way that's going to change is when they start talking about these bills being put through the House, if there's a bill and they don't notify that they're putting a bill out, they're not doing their job. But when they put out a bill that says this bill is going in front of the House Representative Committee, people are supposed to know about that and they should be part of that voting process on the ballot. You're not supposed to throw these bills in whatever you get ready to. Congressmen should be elected. Representatives should be elected, just like the president and everybody else through their food chain. They need to change that system. Is where the problem is coming from the very beginning. They knew that. This, 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 this Constitution that we're working on was never designed to be used this way. They're taking this Constitution that was supposed to be to protect people and using it as a bludgeon. And people need to wake up. They need to start protesting more. They need to start stepping up and saying, we're not having that. You're passing a bill that you haven't talked to anybody about. They need to eliminate the phrase, the term, the terminology, filibuster. You shouldn't even be able to get in there and stall something that's going to the House of Representatives or before Congress for so long. The person that's filibusting, get him out of there because he's only stalling everything. We're trying to make progress here. This country was supposed to be from the very beginning about progress. Industrial, social, humanitarian progress around the world. We were the leaders of the world at one time. The world looked up to us. They're now having their boot on our neck, telling us we don't have the right to tell them about anything because we are so barbarian in our own treatment of our own people. It needs to change. The only way to change is when people stop sitting back and saying, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. If there's nothing you can do about it, you know what? Leave the country. Move aside. Close your mouth and stop protesting about things that aren't going to make a difference and start stepping up for those things they do. I, I have noticed I have noticed a decline in, in, in certain things here, and it's, it's kind of disappointing, and it, it's almost disheartening uh, to see uh, there is a slight decline. I know there's definitely a financial decline. In fact, the financial decline is almost like sliding down a razor blade into alcohol, to tell you the truth. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's really ugly yeah. right now, uh, and you're seeing it at, at every point. But if you go back to those numbers, guys, a lot of a lot of money is being wasted on something that doesn't work, and that's the war on drugs or the war with drugs, as Mike said. It's not working. It's not working. Okay, and it, it, it is not working. And, and, and maybe we're it is already working. Broke. Or maybe it is working to a certain person. It's working for some. It's yeah. working for some. And that's the problem. Well, like our caller pointed out, that's the problem. Well, two words with that, and, and I ran a contract. We'll leave it there. I don't even want to start on that. It's a little too deep because we already know what's going on with that. You right. turn around and right. go, wow. 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 we'll, we'll leave it there. there. And, and, and then you arrest him for it, convict him, and execute right. him for it. Oh, right. Wow. Right. But the guy, All right. The guy so let's go around the room. <laughs> 
the, the, the panel here with some afterthoughts. We're about to go ahead and, and come to the end of our show for this evening. I think there were some wonderful, wonderful, insightful points brought out for both the gun control issue and the war on drugs. And uh, I believe that the two uh, go hand in hand because during the Prohibition era, you saw an increase in violence. You saw an increase of, uh, you, you know, crime during those periods of time. Uh, and, I, and as I stated earlier, that was the birth of your American organized crime movement here in America that's still around till today because of that Prohibition era. Um, you see movies and shows about it all the time. And what you're seeing now is a rebirth of that uh, with the drug cartels. In fact, there's even people out here, because of what's going on with cigarettes, that are selling cigarettes like as if they were, they were drugs or, or prohibition liquor. So I got all these things are going on right now. And uh, we're putting people in jail for it. And, and, and as uh, uh, Attorney Bryan said, uh, who's the victim here? You know, and, and, who's, and who's making off like a fat rat? Uh, Diaz, any closing remarks before we go ahead and close this out for this evening? Uh, just, uh, just the panelists, uh, very interesting topics, very good conversation. Uh, I think this conversation can go on forever, and, uh, you know, I think we should revisit this in, in probably six months. We'll, we'll oh, yeah, definitely. We, we will revisit it. We will revisit it, <laughs> yeah, definitely. probably have the same points to give. Uh, pass it on. Comments? Rob, any closing oh, comments, my friend? Oh, yeah. I tell you, um, I guess the victim, <laughs> and it's kind of funny that I'm going to say this. Um, unfortunately, the government will consider themselves the victims because they're not getting that tax money. <laughs> I'm gonna leave it at that. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine that. Hadaria, any closing comments on uh, this evening's discussion? I think that um, it's really important that we're doing what we're doing, and it's, it's important to challenge and scrutinize, um, with, when especially I think we've been doing that with the gun control, with the, the drug war for a long time. But the gun control, I think, is really, really critical, and this discussion opened up a lot of things that really you're not going to get a lot of bang for your buck in terms of protecting people by limiting legal ownership. That's just not the way, and I, I don't think that's going to be helpful. I think there are other things going on that we've discussed that need to be investigated first. Uh, Brian, any closing remarks, sir? Uh, yeah, I have a closing remark about, about gun control in particular. Um, politicians rely on anecdotes, and they use children as props in, in, in the uh, push to increase gun control. Um, the stories you hear are about tend to be about illegal guns, not legally owned ones. And for every anecdote and story you hear about people harmed by an illegal gun, there are many more anecdotes about people who have protected themselves and others, uh, but you don't hear it in the news. Because when, when a licensed permit holder or a concealed carry holder um, has a gun, most of the time they never take it out, uh, in, in, except you know, for the range or at home. Um, they uh, they are they deter criminals, and the reason why is because criminals, when they know that there's a concealed carry law, um, they, it's a deterrent to them. It's a very high cost uh, uh, occupation to be a criminal when you know that people can shoot you 
uh, if you accost them. So simply having the law decreases murders, decreases rapes, decreases assaults, decreases robberies. And it's, it's not a news story when a crime is averted. You only hear there's a person laying on the ground who was shot, it makes the news. If a person shows the criminal, hey, I have a gun in my waistband, and the, and the criminal runs away, you never hear about it. That's true. That's true. And another thing that you never hear about is what I mentioned in regards to Rob's earlier comment about the 1 in 12 go to jail for a lot of these crimes. And that's just something that you you, you don't really hear about. Uh, and again, with the extra chances and over and over and over and over again to people who we know need to be in jail, you know. You know, growing up in certain areas, it, it's so funny that we know who needed to be in jail. They just never seemed to get there, apparently, <laughs> you know. And a lot of times the guy, as we stated before, walking down the street with, with a few leaves in his pocket goes to jail. And the the, the irony is this. This person, male or female, goes to jail for the first time for something so petty. And when they come out, they didn't go in a criminal. When they come out, because of what they have to do to survive behind bars, they do become a criminal. And now you have a criminal on your hands when he comes out. They didn't know this stuff before, but they know it now. And, you know, depending on their situation when they come out, they can't find a job. They're liable now to commit some real crimes. Um, I had a, a, a story in, in Massachusetts that I'm going to share with you before we sign off here about a, a young a young kid, teenage teenage uh, boy, uh, that uh, was arrested uh, as a juvie and, uh, for marijuana possession in the state of Massachusetts. And uh, he went to jail. They thought that he was going to get probation or... or, or or something like that. He he, he was sentenced to uh, some time in jail by a judge. He had a judge uh, a judge uh, uh, hearing, and uh, the kid couldn't handle it and hung himself in jail. Now the end of that story is that the judge later on got arrested because there was an investigation into him because he actually was sending kids to jail uh, because he was getting kickbacks from a good friend of his who. You know, owned a prison. It was a private prison that that his friend owned, or his friend ran, and he was getting kickbacks. And so that's why he sent this young boy to jail for possession of marijuana. And this kid killed himself. And the mother was devastated. And as we said before, earlier in the conversation, who stands to gain from situations like this? Your privatized prisons, your privatized jails, these are the ones that are making money off of issues like this, of people being arrested for <laughs> victimless crimes, if I want to use that term. But uh, uh, once again, everybody here, uh, Mike, thank you again for, for calling again. Uh, Brian Burson of the Burson Firm, thank you so much for calling. Uh, you're, oh, you're a friend of the show. You can call in any time. Uh, Rob, you. as usual, thank you for your insight and for the music. And Hadaria of uh, Morgan Legal Solutions, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a wonderful show. Join us again, everybody, next Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Real Talk All the Time on Real Talk Radio 17. Thank you all, and good night. Be there, be heard.